Section 6 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 20, The Ecclesiastical Titles Bill, Part 1. The autumn of 1850 and the greater part of 1851 were disturbed by an agitation which seems strangely out of keeping with our present condition of religious liberty and civilization. A struggle with the papal court might appear to be a practical impossibility for the England of our time. The mind has to go back some centuries to put itself into what would appear the proper framework for such events. Legislation or even agitation against papal aggression, would seem about as superfluous in our modern English days as the use of any of the once popular charms which were believed to hinder witches of their will. The story is extraordinary and is in many ways instructive. For some time previous to 1850 there had been, as we have seen already, a certain movement among some scholarly mystical men in England toward the Roman Church. We have already shown how this movement began and how little it could fairly be said to represent any actual impulse of reaction among the English people, but it unquestionably made a profound impression in Rome. The court of Rome then saw everything through the eyes of ecclesiastics, and a Roman Catholic ecclesiastic not well acquainted with the actual conditions of English life might well be excused if when he found that two or three great Englishmen had gone over to the church, he fancied that they were but the vanguard of a vast popular or national movement. It is clear that the court of Rome was quite mistaken as to the religious condition of England. The most chimerical notions prevailed in the Vatican. To the eyes of papal enthusiasm, the whole English nation was only waiting for some word in season, to return to the spiritual jurisdiction of Rome. The Pope had not been fortunate in many things. He had been a fugitive from his own city and had been restored only by the force of French arms. He was a thoroughly good, pious, and genial man, not seeing far into the various ways of human thought and national character. And to his mind, there was nothing unreasonable in the idea that heaven might have made up for the domestic disasters of his reign by making him the instrument of the conversion of England. No better proof can be given of the manner in which he and his advisers misunderstood the English people than the step with which his sanguine zeal inspired him. The English people, even while they yet bowed to the spiritual supremacy of the papacy, were always keenly jealous of any ecclesiastical attempt to control the political action or restrict the national independence of England. The history of the relations between England and Rome for long generations before England had any thought of renouncing the faith of Rome might have furnished ample proof of this to anyone who gave himself the trouble to turn over a few pages of English chronicles. The Pope did not read English, and his advisers did not understand England. Accordingly, he took a step with the view of encouraging and inviting England to become converted which was calculated specially and instantly to defeat its own purpose. Had the great majority of the English people been really drawing toward the verge of a reaction to Rome, such an act as that done by the Pope might have startled them back to their old attitude. The assumption of papal authority over England only filled the English people with a new determination to repudiate and resist 
every pretension at spiritual authority on the part of the court of Rome. The time has so completely passed away, and the supposed pretensions have come to so little, that the most zealous Protestants can afford to discuss the whole question now with absolute impartiality and unruffled calmness. Everyone can clearly see now that if the Pope was mistaken in the course he took, and if the nation in general was amply justified in resenting even a supposed attempt at foreign interference, the piece of legislation to which the occasion gave birth was not a masterpiece of statesmanship, nor was the manner in which it was carried through always creditable to the good sense of Parliament and the public. The papal aggression in itself was perhaps a measure to smile at, rather than to arouse great national indignation. It consisted of the issue of a papal bull, given at St. Peter's Rome under the seal of the fishermen, and directing the establishment in England of a hierarchy of bishops deriving their titles from their own sees, which we constitute by the present letter in the various apostolic districts. It is a curious evidence of the little knowledge of England's condition possessed by the court of Rome then, that although five-sixths at least of the Catholics in England were Irish by birth or extraction, the newly appointed bishops were all or nearly all Englishmen unconnected with Ireland. An Englishman of the present day would be probably inclined to ask, on hearing the effect of the bull, is that all? Being told that that was all, he would probably have gone on to ask, what does it matter? Who cares whether the Pope gives new titles to his English ecclesiastics or not? What Protestant is even interested in knowing whether a certain Catholic bishop living in England is called Bishop of Mesopotamia or of Lambeth? There always were Catholic bishops in England. There were Catholic archbishops. They were free to go and come, to preach and teach as they liked, to dress as they liked. For all that nineteen out of every twenty Englishmen cared, they might have been also free to call themselves what they liked. Any Protestant who mixed with Roman Catholics or knew anything about their usages knew that they were in the habit of calling their bishops my lord and their archbishops your grace. He knew, of course, that they had not the slightest legal right to use such high-sounding titles, but this did not trouble him in the least. It was only a ceremonial intended for Catholics, and it did not give him either offense or concern. Why, then, should he be expected to disturb his mind because the Pope chose to direct that the English Roman Catholics should call a man Bishop of Liverpool or Archbishop of Westminster? The Pope could not compel him to call them by any such names if he did not think fit, and unless his attention had been very earnestly drawn to the fact, he never probably would have found out that any new titles had been invented for the Catholic hierarchy in England. This was the way in which a great many Englishmen regarded the matter even then. But it must be owned that there was something about the time and manner of the papal bull calculated to offend the susceptibility of a great and independent nation. The mere fact that a certain movement towards Rome had been painfully visible in the ranks of the English church itself was enough to make people sensitive and jealous. The plain sense of many thoroughly impartial and cool-headed Englishmen showed them that the two things were connected in the mind of the Pope, and that he had issued his bull because he thought the time was actually coming when he might begin to take measures for the spiritual annexation of England. His pretensions might be of no account in themselves, but the fact that he made them in the evident belief 
that they were justified by realities produced a jarring and painful effect on the mind of england the offence lay in the pope's evident assumption that the change he was making was the natural result of an actual change in the national feeling of england the anger was not against the giving of the new titles but against the assumption of a new right to give titles representing territorial distinctions in this country the agitation that sprang up was fiercely heated by the pastoral letter of the chief of the new hierarchy the pope had divided england into various dioceses which he placed under the control of an archbishop and twelve suffragans and the new archbishop was cardinal wiseman under the title of archbishop of westminster and administrator apostolic of the diocese of southwark cardinal wiseman was now to reside in london cardinal wiseman was already well known in england he was of english descent on his father's side and of irish on his mother's he was a spaniard by birth and a roman by education his family on both sides was of good position his father came of a long line of essex gentry wiseman had held the professorship of oriental languages in the english college at rome and afterwards became rector of the college in eighteen forty he was appointed by the pope one of the vicars apostolic of england and held his position here as bishop of melopotamus in partibus infidelium he was well known to be a fine scholar an accomplished linguist and a powerful preacher and controversialist but he was believed also to be a man of great ecclesiastical ambition ambition for his church that is to say of singular boldness and of much political ability the pope's action was set down as in great measure the work of wise men the cardinal himself was accepted in the minds of most englishmen as a type of the regular italian ecclesiastic bold clever ambitious and unscrupulous the very fact of his english extraction only militated the more against him in the public feeling he was regarded as in some sense one who had gone over to the enemy and who was the more to be dreaded because of the knowledge he carried with him perhaps it is not too much to say that in the existing mood of the english people the very title of cardinal exasperated the feeling against wiseman had he come as a simple archbishop the aggression might not have seemed so marked the title of cardinal brought back unwelcome memories to the english public it reminded them of a period of their history when the forces of rome and those of the national independence were really arrayed against each other in a struggle which englishmen might justly look on as dangerous since those times there had been no cardinal in england did it not look ominous that a cardinal should present himself now the first step taken by cardinal wiseman did not tend to charm away this feeling he issued a pastoral letter addressed to england on october seventh eighteen fifty which was set forth as given out of the flaminian gate of rome this description of the letter was afterwards stated to be in accordance with one of the necessary formularies of the church of rome but it was then assumed in england to be an expression of insolence and audacity intended to remind the english people that from out of rome itself came the assertion of supremacy over them this letter was to be read publicly in all the roman catholic churches in london it addressed itself directly to the english people and it announced that your beloved country has received a place among the fair churches 
which normally constituted form the splendid aggregate of catholic communion catholic england has been restored to its orbit in the ecclesiastical firmament from which its light had long vanished and begins now anew its course of regularly adjusted action round the centre of unity the source of jurisdiction of light and of vigour it must be allowed that this was rather imprudent language to address to a people peculiarly proud of being protestant a people of whom their critics say not wholly without reason that they are somewhat narrow and unsympathetic in their protestantism that their national tendency is to believe in the existence of nothing really good outside the limits of protestantism in england the national church is a symbol of victory over foreign enemies and domination at home it was not likely that the english people could regard it as anything but an offence to be told that they were resuming their place as a part of an ecclesiastical system to which they of all peoples looked with dislike and distrust we are not saying that the feeling with which the great bulk of the english people regarded cardinal wiseman's church was just or liberal we are simply recording the unquestionable historical fact that such was the manner in which the english people regarded the roman church in order to show how slender was the probability of their being moved to anything but anger by such expressions as those contained in cardinal wiseman's letter but the letter had hardly reached england when the country was aroused by another letter coming from a very different quarter and intended as a counterblast to the papal assumption of authority this was lord john russell's famous durham letter russell had the art of writing letters that exploded like bombshells in the midst of some controversy his edinburgh letter had set the cabinet of sir robert peel on to recognize the fact that something must be done with the free trade question and now his durham letter spoke the word that let loose a very torrent of english public feeling the letter was in reply to one from the bishop of durham and was dated downing street november the fourth lord john russell condemned in the most unmeasured terms the assumption of the pope as a pretension of supremacy over the realm of england and a claim to sole and undivided sway which is inconsistent with the queen's supremacy with the rights of our bishops and clergy and with the spiritual independence of the nation as asserted even in the roman catholic times lord john russell went on to say that his alarm was by no means equal to his indignation that the liberty of protestantism had been enjoyed too long in england to allow of any successful attempt to impose a foreign yoke upon men's minds and consciences and that the laws of the country should be carefully examined and the propriety of adopting some additional measures deliberately considered but lord john russell went further than all this he declared that there was a danger that alarmed him more than any aggression from a foreign sovereign and that was the danger within the gates from the unworthy sons of the church of england herself clergymen of that church he declared had been leading their flocks step by step to the verge of the precipice what he asked meant the honour paid to saints the claim of infallibility for the church the superstitious use of the sign of the cross the muttering of the liturgy so as to disguise the language in which it is written the recommendation of auricular confession and the administration of penance and absolution the letter closed with a sentence which gave a special offence to roman catholics but which lord john russell afterwards explained 
and indeed the context ought to have shown, was not meant as any attack on their religion or their ceremonial. I have little hope that the propounders and framers of these innovations will desist from their insidious course, but I rely with confidence on the people of England, and I will not bait one jot of heart or hope so long as the glorious principles and the immortal martyrs of the Reformation shall be held in reverence by the great mass of a nation which looks with contempt on the mummeries of superstition and with scorn at the laborious endeavors which are now making to confine the intellect and enslave the soul. It is now clear from the very terms of this letter that Lord John Russell meant to apply these words to the practices within the English church, which he had so strongly condemned in the earlier passages, and which alone he said he regarded with any serious alarm. But the Roman Catholics in general, and the majority of persons of all sects, accepted them as a denunciation of popery. The Catholics looked upon them as a declaration of war against Catholicism. The fanatical of the other side welcomed them as a trumpet call to a new no-popery agitation. The very day after the letter appeared was the Guy Fawkes anniversary. All over the country the effigies of the Pope and Cardinal Wiseman took the place of the regulation Guy, and were paraded and burnt amid tumultuous demonstrations. A colossal procession of Guys passed down Fleet Street, the principal figure of which a gigantic form of sixteen feet high, seated in a chariot, had to be bent down and compelled to veil his crest in order to pass under Temple Bar. This titanic guy was the new cardinal in his red robes. In Exeter a yet more elaborate anti-papal demonstration was made. A procession of two hundred persons in character dresses marched round the venerable cathedral amid the varied effulgence of colored lights. The procession represented the Pope, the new Cardinal, and the Inquisition, various of the Inquisitors brandishing instruments of torture. Considerable sums of money were spent on these popular demonstrations, the only interest in which now is that they serve to illustrate the public sentiment of the hour. Mr. Disraeli good-naturedly endeavored at once to foment the prevailing heat of public temper and at the same time to direct its fervor against the ministry themselves by declaring in a published letter that he could hardly blame the Pope for supposing himself at liberty to divide England into bishoprics, seeing the encouragement he had got from the ministers themselves by the recognition they had offered to the Roman Catholic hierarchy of Ireland. The fact is, Mr. Disraeli said, the whole question has been surrendered and decided in favor of the Pope by the present government. The ministers who recognized the pseudo-archbishop of Tuam as a peer and a prelate cannot object to the appointment of a pseudo-archbishop of Westminster, even though he be a cardinal. As a matter of fact, it was not the existing government that had recognized the rank of the Irish Catholic prelates. The recognition had been formally arranged in January 1845 by a royal warrant or commission for carrying out the Charitable Bequests Act which gave the Irish Catholic prelates rank immediately after the prelates of the established church of the same degree. But the letter of Mr. Disraeli, like that of Lord John Russell, served to inflame passions on both sides and to put the country in the worst possible mood for any manner of wholesome legislation. 
never during the same generation had there been such an outburst of anger on both sides of the religious controversy. It was a curious incident in political history that Lord John Russell, who had more than any Englishman then living been identified with the principles of religious liberty, who had sat at the feet of Fox and had for his closest friend the Catholic poet Thomas Moore, came to be regarded by Roman Catholics as the bitterest enemy of their creed and their rights of worship. The ministry felt that something must be done. They could not face Parliament without some piece of legislation to satisfy public feeling. Many even among the most zealous Protestants deeply regretted that Lord John Russell had written anything on the subject. Not a few Roman Catholics of position and influence bitterly lamented the indiscretion of the papal court. The mischief, however, was now fairly afoot. The step taken by the Pope had set the country aflame. Every day crowded and tumultuous meetings were held to denounce the action of the court of Rome. Before the end of the year, something like 7,000 such meetings had been held throughout the kingdom. Sometimes the Roman Catholic party mustered strong at such demonstrations, and the result was rioting and disturbance. Addresses poured in upon the Queen and the ministers calling for decided action against the assumption of papal authority. About the same time, Father Gavazzi, an Italian Republican who had been a priest, came to London and began a series of lectures against the papacy. He was a man of great rhetorical power, with a remarkable command of the eloquence of passion and denunciation. His lectures were at first given only in Italian, and therefore did not appeal to a popular English audience. But they were reported in the papers at much length, and they contributed not a little to swell the tide of public feeling against the Pope and the Court of Rome. The new Lord Chancellor, Lord Truro, created great applause and tumult at the Lord Mayor's dinner by quoting from Shakespeare the words, Under my feet I'll stamp thy cardinal's hat, in spite of Pope or dignities of church. Charles Keane, the tragedian, was interrupted by thundering peals of applause and the rising of the whole audience to their feet, when, as King John, he proclaimed, that no Italian priest shall tithe or toll in our dominion. Long afterwards, and when the storm seemed to have wholly died away, Cardinal Wiseman, going in a carriage through the streets of Liverpool to deliver a lecture on a purely literary subject to a general audience, was pelted with stones by a mob who remembered the papal assumption and the passions excited by the Ecclesiastical Titles Act. End of Section 6